Time to Travel with Karen Key. And a very good evening to you and welcome to this week's edition of Time to Travel. On the show this evening, I'll be chatting with Charisse Foyun, Senior Horticulturalist at Kirstenbosch Garden, about their centenary year, their garden fair and all the events taking place at this UNESCO World Heritage Site. Then it's off to Franchuk and Leopard's Leap in particular, where I'll be speaking with Harry Hubert, the experience manager, and from personal experience, it truly is an experience. Jan Allison, Secretary of the Tourism Machubuskloof Association, will be on the line, and she'll be filling us in on the upcoming Machubuskloof and Heinitzburg Kiwi Fruit Festival. And finally, it's off to the Italian Alps for a skiing adventure with iAfrica.com travel editor Richard Holmes. And if you need any information about something you hear on Time to Travel this evening, you can find it on Facebook. Just go to Travel on SAFM. There's also a link there on the Facebook page if you'd like to download the podcast of the show. But if you'd still like to contact me directly, you can email me on travel at safm.co.za. Well, that's the lineup for this evening. I do hope you'll stay with me and enjoy the show here on SAFM. Time to Travel with Karen Key. Well, in 2004, the Cape Floristic region, including Kirstenbosch, was declared a UNESCO World Heritage Site, the first botanical garden in the world to be included within a natural world heritage site. Well, this year, 2013, Kirstenbosch turns 100 years old, and so will some of its plants, I believe. Well, to tell us what they've got planned for this special year, I'm joined now by Cherise Foyun, and she's a Kirstenbosch senior horticulturalist. Cherise, good evening. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Colin. Nice to be on. Well, I was absolutely fascinated to read about these plants and trees that seem to have been at Kirstenbosch absolutely forever. They're known as the centen- centenarians. Yes, it's quite a mouthful, isn't it? We yes, just, I kind of lost it there for a moment. To get our, our mouths around it for a while. But centenarians they are. With a lot of practice, uh, we, got it all, we all got it right. And what we've done is we've um, hunted down all the 100-year-old plants. Some of them are original some of them are progeny um, that we can guarantee are cuttings made from the original plant, and we've kept that number going. And the thing that makes botanical gardens different from other gardens is that each of our plants has a history, a number attached to it, and it gives you all sorts of information, who collected it, what year it was collected, where it was collected. It's actually like an interrogation document when we try to fill them in, when we collect things in the wild. But the bonus thing of it, the, the advantage of it, is that we can track that plant's history throughout the garden, and we have had some plants for 100 years. Now, the plants that are there, where did they come from? Where did most of them come from? Or do you have a sort of a history of that, where they were originated? Are there a lot of in, sort of indigenous plants, or they're coming in from overseas? Where do they come from? Mainly they're indigenous plants. We have uh, the ginkgo, and we have some oaks, and we have the cedrus that are exotic and they are certainly part of the garden's history but the rest of the plants are all indigenous plants that have been growing for 100 years and they were collected in the wild by various collectors across south africa in 1913 and planted out in the garden within that year and yep as i say we've been keeping them going we're very proud of the fact i don't think we'd stop to realize how many of those accession numbers and plants we'd kept going. So now whenever I walk around the garden, I'm constantly looking at the labels to see what is the date because the first little number, say 20413, is the number that was given to the plant in order of its accessioning. So that was the 204th plant that was accessioned in 1913. So I'm looking for all those 13s and finding them all over the garden (laughs) going, aha, hello. 
Now, are they still in the same place where they originally planted, or have they been moved over the years? I mean, a few you... of them are, yes. The Gardenia Thunbergi on the uh, uh, lawn, Great Lawn, as you enter in through the stone gates and you're looking up at that beautiful castle rock backdrop um, to the right of the pond, there is that Gardenia Thunbergi that is the original planting. There are a few more, but that's my favourite one. It must be rather gratifying, I think, having a job like yours, walking around looking at all these fabulous plants. It is, and I feel like they're all my friends. I know that sounds really weird, but they're so familiar to you after a while, you know, and often also I only know them from the garden and I how to grow them, what they look like in a nursery, what they look like on display and being interpreted in Kirsten Bosch. You should see me when I meet them in the wild, when I find those same plants and I often look at them and think, why would anyone have collected this? It doesn't look like anything. Then I have that background knowledge of what an awesome garden specimen it makes. Now, the exciting thing, though, Charisse, is that coming up on the 20th and 21st of April, you have your garden fair at Kirstenbosch, where yes. the likes of me, who are not terribly au fait with what goes on as far as plants are concerned, we can actually come and buy some of that, that history from Kirstenbosch. Absolutely. We have our um, annual garden fair, that is run by the Botanical Society, the Kirstenbosch branch, to raise funds for development that goes on in Kirstenbosch. It's such a fantastic fundraising event, but it's also this wonderful showcase of our indigenous flora. And every year we have a theme, so of course it was very appropriate this year to highlight our centenarians and to sell them off to the people so you can take home a little piece of Kirstenbosch's history. It even has a little certificate of authentication that goes with it. And as we do every year, we highlight our champions, which are plants that would not be in your gardens if it wasn't for the collectors, the horticulturists of Kirstenbosch, doing their work throughout the years, finding the plants in the wild, growing them on, displaying them, making them available to the public. So it's that combination of centenarians and champions that will be on this weekend. And I think the reason particularly you're speaking to me tonight is I am delivering most of the plants personally. I've grown them for about a year or more to get them all ready, and they're looking wonderful. Now, do we get to take a horticulturalist home with us, uh, Charissa, to make sure we can can grow grow them properly? For a little while. I don't think we'll leave the the garden fair ground. We're very attached to the grass there and the whole area. But certainly if you come in, we're always wearing orange caps. Most of the volunteers are wearing orange aprons, but uh, the horticulturist can be spotted throughout the the, uh, fairground uh, with these orange caps on. And we are there, uh, all take turns, and we are on hand to answer advice, recommend plants, any questions you have, just want to come up and say hi, please do. It's a wonderful tourist destination, though. You get lots of international visitors to Kirstenbosch. All over the world, all the time. The other thing, it's not all just about... The, the plants, which I mean, that's the bulk of what, why people go to Kirstenbosch, but there's also these amazing walks, and there are incredible number of rec- birds have been recorded in the garden. I would not not surprised with all the plants and flowers there, but you can go on bird walks through the garden as well. Absolutely, yes, we do all sorts of works walks to highlight our biodiversity. You know, we became we moved as an institute from being botanical gardens to being an institute of biodiversity because. As you say, Karen, along with all the plants comes all the flora and fauna, I mean, all the fauna comes with the flora. And we have butterflies, we have insects, we have pollinators, we sometimes even lucky enough to spot a back or spot a jackal or, you know, something like that, a roy cutters, they call it, I call them little jackals. 
And so very, very lucky. We have owls that are indigenous in the garden. And, of course, so many birds. But now also, for if people wanted to get that just that little bit more involved, you also have the botanical art competition that's going on. It's, it's the Biennale coming up, I think, in August, September. Yes, it is. If any of you can, can do a drawing botanically or otherwise, I mean, there are certain rules, I guess, for botanical art and that it must look like the thing you're painting or drawing or sketching. It can be in watercolour, it can be anything, and you're welcome to enter. And it's this wonderful display of botanical art that then goes on sale. And it's, collectors enjoy that from all over the world, um, and mainly it is South African artists, and we often make the plants available for them to paint and, and to capture in this way. And it's, it's a great way to represent the flora in, in a different medium. I, I was just reading some information that the focus of the 2013 Biennale is medicinal and tr- traditional use plants of Southern Africa and registration for entries closes on June the 25th. So you, if you're a budding artist or you, if you are an artist, you have still got time to register for that. I'll give out the website address that you can do, um, you know, send your entries or your applications to at this point. Sharice, um, what else is going on there? I mean, there's something going on there almost every day. We are trying to have something on every month. So at the moment, um, the things that have happened so far and are still on display are the historical banner that we have um, next to Moyo Restaurant on the main walkway as you enter. And it's a historical timeline depicting how the garden began and the history and who the first uh, founders were and how we, how we came into being. And it's a really lovely story with photographic evidence all the sections as they looked so many years ago. Um, it's in Bygone Days is the title of it. It's really, really nice. And it's just lovely to walk along it and, and get all that information in such an easy way, very visual. And then there's this book um, that Brian Huntley has written, The Most Beautiful Garden in the World. Of course, we are slightly biased. But <laughs> well, you're entitled to. You're entitled to. And this book is a photographic uh, delight. Um, capturing all the seasons and the plants and the areas of the garden, along with Brian's wonderful way of putting the history and connecting the people to the plants. So that's that's wonderful. That's on sale in our bookshop for just over 300 rand, um, which is a very good value for what you're getting. And it, I think it was supposed to be a coffee table book, but it's landed up being this wonderful historical memoir of Kirsten Bosch. And in its current day, too. It's very current as well. And tomorrow you're launching your Chelsea Flower Exhibit. We are. Yes. And I'm on the team. I'm oh. so excited. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to bouncing up and down as I speak to you. I can't seem to keep still because, I mean, the Chelsea Flower Show is such a fantastic celebration of horticulture and flowers. And our exhibit, I mean, we're 100 years old. And David Davidson and Ray Hudson, as usual, have done the most amazing, I don't want to give too much away before tomorrow, but as usual, they've, they've pulled an amazing exhibit design out of the hat, very unusual, something that we've never done before, and certainly very honestly depicting Kirstenbosch in its, in its centenary year and places in Kirstenbosch that are iconic. When you come to Kirstenbosch, the heart of the garden is the dell, and, of course, the fangles is the other part of it. But that's all I'm saying. You'll have to wait till tomorrow. Okay, okay. <laughs> are you going to be accompanying the exhibit to London? Am I? Sorry, a- can't accompa- you say a- again? Are you going to be accompanying the exhibit to London? Yes, 
I'll be Ooh. going with the Sandy team. Oh, right. Okay. He builds the exhibit at the mm. Chelsea Flower Show. That is so exciting, Cherise. It really, really is. And the other exciting thing is it's actually the Royal Horticultural Society's centenary oh, year really? as well. Oh, really? I didn't know that. So it's celebrations all around. But the, the Kirsten Bosch exhibit always does extremely well at the Chelsea Flower Show. It does because David is just... He's amazing with his designs and the way he displays the floor and how he keeps up with trends and times. And um, he always does the most fantastic job. And uh, we find South Africans coming up to the stand crying and sniffing prunes oh. as we sell them <laughs> off and walking away with these dead flowers very nostalgically. Oh, we really sure. feel sorry for them. And then we have people who have been to South Africa, uh, many, many, many visitors, just coming to just reminisce about their trip. And then we have those that are saying, they're planning on coming or they've always wished they could come and you know we're hoping to draw them over to to south africa and of course to the to the garden well it sounds like you've got a very busy year ahead of you but first of all let's deal with tomorrow and the launch of the chelsea flower exhibit coming up this weekend as i mentioned is the garden fair if you'd like to go and get yourself a little piece of history i suggest you pop along to kirsten bosch this weekend and you can go and get that but sharice thank you so much for joining me and uh, have a wonderful rest of the year it sounds like you've got a very busy time ahead of you Thank you, Karen. Yes, definitely. And there's there's lots more if you go to the Sandby website and you go onto the Kirsten Bosch garden site. You'll also be able to keep up with all the events and walks and celebrations that we are doing throughout the year. It'll be nice to see all of you there. Thank you so much for your time this evening, Cherise. Thank you. Good night. Bye. Bye-bye. Kirsten Bosch Senior Horticulturalist Cherise for you and was telling us there about their plans for their centenary year. And for more information on all these events, you can take a look at www.sanbi, that's S-A-N-B-I, dot org forward slash gardens forward slash Kirsten Bosch or you can call them on 021-799-8783 Time to travel with Karen Key well, in the heart of Franschhoek, you'll find Leopard's Leap family vineyards, and it's a whole lot more than you could absolutely possibly imagine. Well, I'm joined this evening by Harry Hubert, and he's the experience manager at Leopard's Leap. And from personal experience, it certainly is quite an experience. Harry, good evening. Welcome to the show. Good evening, Corin. Thanks for having me. Just for people, just to place Leopard's Leap, it's just before you actually get into the town of Franschhoek. Yeah, we're situated about five kilometers before you enter Franschhoek. If you come from the N1 or more um, better known as the Paul Road. And I always like to tell people Franschhoek is not even an hour from Cape Town. So it's pretty accessible. It's very close. You can pop out for the day. It doesn't have to be a whole long journey. It's quite a short journey. That's right. A lot of people think it's further than it is, but from Cape Town, it's about 45 minutes drive, so it's really not far. Right. So I was pleasantly surprised, and we had a fabulous time when we came out there a couple of weeks ago, one Saturday afternoon. Um, tell us about what's going on at the moment, because you've got this wonderful veranda, and with winter, if you're in Cape Town at the moment, you'll know that winter suddenly arrived yesterday, and it's still going on today. I don't think it's going to be here tomorrow, but you are situated in, in such a way that if it's a summer and a winter destination. That's right, Corin. Yeah, we've got actually in Franschhoek, we, we, we're very privileged with, with all the different destinations we have here and the mountains and all of that. So we've used that and capitalized on that. We've got a lovely veranda on the outside of our building, um, and that's got lovely views over the vineyards and the mountains. Um, and what we've done is you can either open it or it is completely enclosed. So we can control the temperature inside this veranda of ours. Um, giving the, the consumer still the, the lovely views out. And what we've done is taken our wines 
um, coming here for, for the day. So we've, we've done a, a whole wine tasting that people can come and do here um, from 17 different wines that they can pick off, um, starting with the wine tasting and then going through to our lunch offering. We've got a rotisserie lunch offering that we've, we've just started, as you probably know. Yes, very so, well. So the, the, the rotisserie offering, what we do is we try and keep it very informal. Um, the venue is very family-orientated. So it is really not, not uh, your, your kind of more formal venues. Um, we, we've got the rotisserie where you've got different kind of meats cooking slowly and roasting on the rotisserie. And that is accomplished with different salads, veg, and then in wintertime we have seasonal soups as well. Well, I was telling somebody after we'd been there a couple of weeks ago, I was telling them that if you if you tried to have a tasting of all the salads and the vegetable accompaniments that were there the day we were there, you'd need about three plates. That's right. <laughs> yeah. so much. I, must, I must admit, what we try and do is we try and have a wide variety of different choices. A lot of our customers that come here, you know, you, you've got your, your, your food that you, you prefer and then the food that you don't prefer so much. So we want to have a wide variety of different foods that you can pick off. I, I was quite impressed by something that um, your PR lady sent through to me, and she said here that you can also indulge in an array of tempting confectionery and desserts, and in, in brackets she put all results to be hidden away under thick winter coats. Now, I can, I can definitely agree with that because some of your desserts were absolutely amazing. So the food is very, it's just, there's a bit of everything. And as you said, it is family friendly. The day we were there, there were loads of kids running around outside. You've got lovely climbing frames and slides and all sorts of things and wonderful gardens there for them to play in as well. That's right. Yeah, we've got a lovely outside area, uh, which is ideal in summertime when they can run outside on the lawn and play outside on the, on the jungle gyms. And then I must admit, we have got a lovely large garden leading up towards the mountainside, mm. which they, they have that freedom of space to run around. Um, and then also we have an organic herb garden that runs up there. So even, I must admit, sometimes more of the adults find in the gardens than the children. But that is for summertime. In wintertime, we also try and accommodate them. So we have the inside area where we've got three different fireplaces um, and then also looking at having some kids' entertainment. So we have some things for them to play with. Some kids prefer to color in. Um, and then we also have some kids' cooking classes that we have from time to time. I was going to talk to you about the cooking classes, but before we get to that, I did notice when I was there that you've got this interactive board for the kids as well. What is that? Can you talk to me about that? Yeah, it's strange. A lot of people that come here think it is for the kids, but it's actually oh. for kids and grown-ups. Oh, well, I wish I'd known. Not. We find the grown-ups in front of the wall, um, I must admit. But, but what it is, is we are a, a big sponsor of the Cape Leopard Trust and the wonderful work they do with the Cape Leopards um, up in the mountains here. And we've, we've created an interactive wall where you step on, onto it, and it's basically a different spots on the wall that you can move to, and it gives you information, not only of the leopards in the mountains, but all the other, other different animals that you do find in the mountains around us. So it's a learning experience, but it's fun at the same time. So Exactly. It's, mm. it's a bit different. It is educational, but at the same time, it is a fun way of doing it. And you mentioned your fireplaces. You've got lots of those. You've got a lovely little reading corner there as well. So it's, it's very cozy for winter. That's right, yeah. As much as it is a summer venue, it is also very much so a winter venue. We've got the ones that I've mentioned previously and um, that people can come here. And a lot of people do end up in the, in the little corner by the fireplace with a recipe book, reading through that with a glass of red wine. Or also we do a lot of very, very good coffees 
that we have. So you can come here, have some of that lovely confectionery you were talking about with a coffee or a glass of red wine in front of the fireplace. Right. Now let's get to the cooking classes because those are for adults and children, which is rather fun. Tell us a little bit about the different classes that you have. And you do lunchtime classes and evening classes. or. That's right, yeah. So what we've done is we've created a calendar and it is on our website for those of you that are interested in looking at that. But we have a lunch time class and we've got an evening time class. Now what these classes entail is basically you come here and we've got our chef Peter de Jager that takes the people through an experience of cooking um, with different techniques and tips that he gives them. So we've got a fully equipped kitchen for 24 people that have their own station and then what he does is he's basically cooking and they're cooking with him at the same time. So it is, it is a hands-on experience um, and people can then come and he's got different type of, of classes that he have. We've had a tapas class this evening um, and then the next class to follow is a seafood class and then in winter time we've got a nice venison and game class coming up. So those are very exciting. And then we have the evening classes for those of the customers that will, will prefer the evening classes. And then we also have the lunchtime classes. So the evening classes, I would imagine if you're coming through from Cape Town, if you're going to be, st- I think that I suggest you then find somewhere to stay over. There's no accommodation at Leopard Sleep. Unfortunately not. We don't have any accommodation on the farm, but we are so spoiled with accommodation all mm. around us. Franchuk and all the wine farms next to us, most of them do offer accommodation. Um, and that, that is really a, a privilege. There's not a shortage of that. I know from, from personal experience and from talking to other people in Franschuk before on the show, there's, there's loads of, of all sorts of different accommodations. So from the, the lowest, you know, whatever you can afford up to the, the highest that you really want to go. So there's something for everybody, basically. Exactly. And the other thing I also noticed, Harry, when we were there, that wonderful sort of almost horseshoe-shaped, is it, or oval-shaped, your, your wine tasting area as you walk into the, the, the venue. Yes, it is quite hard to explain. It's actually all different shapes you can mm, imagine. Yes. What we've done there, Corin, is we've got the, the tasting venue, but it's different from any other tasting venue. It suits the kind of brand and, and the leopard's leap feel to it. It is a very informal wines that we have, and we've got everything from the novice to the connoisseur. So people can come here, sit by the, the counter that has got different angles and shapes to it, and have a wine tasting with our wine ambassadors. Then also what we have is we've got a private wine tasting lounge. So you do get some people that want to sit in a more kind of kind of conserved area and appreciate the wines and do a much more serious tasting with all the external factors taken out of the equation. And that is what we have that room for. You also you open for conferences and those sorts of things, Harry? Yes, we are. We've got two, two rooms, the private tasting room, which I was telling you about now, that can accommodate up to 20 people, and that's, that's the horseshoe kind of table that, that we've got that is enclosed. And then we've also got a boardroom that can seat 16 people with all the, the kind of things that you can imagine go with that. I hope there are no windows in that room. Well, well, there is windows in it, but we have blinds, so we can completely close the room up. So a lot of people come here and they want to do presentations, especially on a sunny day. It is hot, so we can close the blinds completely, and it is then a dark room, basically. Now, why I was asking about the windows was that if you look out the windows, you're going to just not be concerned with what someone's telling you. You're going to be looking at the view, because the view from there is just stunning. Those Franschuk mountains are absolutely amazing. We have had that problem before, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Because people aren't going to be concentrating on what's being what's being told to them at the conference. They're going to be staring out the window. Exactly. It's either the views or the wines, but there's yes. a lot of distractions here. Absolutely. And the whole that testing center, it's relatively new, I mean, that whole area. Um, amazing architecture. I loved walking in there over the water. 
That's right, yeah. We've got a lot of water features, and those are the kind of elements that you use in winemaking. So very earthy. Um, we've got the water here. You've got the vineyards here. You know, whether it's sunny or raining, those are all the elements that determine the wine at the end of the day. And we use those elements to keep it very earthy, to keep it very informal, and actually bring those to the front. And you're going to be closed, though, just so people know, from the 17th of July, and you reopen on the 6th of August, just for your slight winter holiday there. Exactly, yeah. We've just realized that we need to give the staff a little bit of a break. Um, it has been a busy year, and we're very privileged to have had a busy year like that. But there is sometimes that you just need to refresh and just kind of take that little bit of a break. So between the 17th and the 6th of August, we'll be closed. Um, we've arranged it like that so that we open over, over the school holidays and then also the Bastille weekend, that is the 12th of July. So the, the venue will be open for those, and then after those, we'll take a small break. Yeah, well, you see, after seeing all the work that you guys have done out there, I think you do need to take a break. But nice to know you're not going to be closed for too long. Exactly. We tried not to have it for too long period, um, and then we will be open on the 6th of August again, which, which we'll take back and, and go exactly what we have been offering all this time. And just if, if people want to come out there and during, is this during winter, I would imagine you, can, you do wine cocktails and you have homemade glue vine, which just sounds wonderful in front of the fireplace. That's right, yes. Because our wines are so versatile and we've got all different types of wines, we have used some of the wines and we've created it into wine cocktails. One of these wines specifically, when we tasted it and you get all the different flavors and it immediately suited the whole glue wine kind of taste and, and culture. So we've decided to do a glue wine that we can run through winter time and then obviously still running the cocktails, which is more focused on summertime. But I must admit, I had a cocktail yesterday with the rain and all we had and it's still is, is, is to die for so, so it's not that I want to not look at the cocktail but also the glue one for these of, those of them that want something a bit warmer Well Harry it sounds like a wonderful time will be had by all who pop out to visit you guys out there at Leopard's Leap in Franschhoek uh, but thank you very much indeed for your time this evening very nice of you to chat with me Thank you Corinne Thanks so much Harry Harry Hubert is the experience manager at Leopard's Leap Family Vineyards in Franschhoek. And if you'd like to find out more, you can take a look at the website. It's www.leopards-leap.com. And there's all information about the opening times, when they're going to be closed for their holidays, um, also about the cooking classes, which sound absolutely amazing, and everything else that's on offer there. So just a reminder, the website, it's www.leopards-leap.com. Time to travel with Karen Key. Well, coming up on the 27th and the 28th of April, it's the Mahubuskloof and Hainitzburg Annual Kiwi Fruit Festival. And joining me on the line now is Jane Allison, and she's Secretary of the Tourism Mahubuskloof Association. Jane, good evening. Welcome to the show. Good evening, Karen. Thank you very much. Now, people hear kiwi fruit and they think, but we don't grow kiwi fruit in South Africa. That comes from, where is it, New Zealand, Australia, somewhere over there. But yet we do. Yes, we do. It is a, a common misconception, but we do grow kiwi fruit in South Africa. Um, there are a few vineyards in, in this area and also in the Cape. Um, it grows on a vine, which um, surprises people often. They imagine that it must um, be on a bush or something, but it's a very interesting and very versatile fruit. So you've got this, it's the annual, how many annuals have you had? What, what, what number is this, the Kiwi Fruit Festival? I think this is about the, the fifth year. It's the third year that I've been involved, so it has been going for a few years now. Okay, so it's the 27th and the 28th, but it's not just about the kiwi fruit. I mean, there's so much else going on that weekend. It's quite amazing. So talk us through what's going to be happening out there. 
Okay, there is, um, it's such a lovely area and there are so many assets. So what we're trying to do is just um, involve people in all the lovely things we have to offer. Um, the first thing on Saturday morning is a mountain bike race. And this is something that the Tourism Association um, actually did for the first time last year. And it really is to market our mountain bike trails that we established last year. The idea being that families who are traveling can come up and visit our area and jump on a mountain bike trail um, for the day. There are short routes that are suitable for kids, and there are also longer routes which are suitable for the serious mountain bikers. So the objective of the race really is to market those routes. Um, so the race will have a 10K route, a 25K route, and then also a 40K route, um, and ready to suit the whole family. So that's on Saturday morning. And then um, the other thing that the Q Festival has become quite famous for is our annual cooking competition. And this year we have um, extended that cooking competition to a cooking clinic, which has actually been running for the last month. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, yeah, the, the cooking clinic was, was the um, brainchild of Eric de Jonge, who is a retired executive chef. And he got um, Pick and Pay on board, Pick and Pay Foundation, who have sponsored um, the, the clinic. And what they've done is taken youngsters from the surrounding area, um, unemployed youngsters, and he's put them through a, a cooking course for a couple of weeks. And that's going to culminate in a cooking competition on, on Saturday. Um, so the youngsters are given a basket of goodies and they are expected to produce a fantastic two-course meal. Um, they will also be joined by other amateurs um, who would like to enter and um, the cooking competition takes place from 10, judging is normally at about 2 on a on the Saturday um, and then again on the Sunday um, so on, on the Saturday will actually be for the professional chefs and on the Sunday for the amateurs. So we invite professional chefs from around the area to come along and also take part. Um, and we've they also get the, the basket of goodies, that, the mystery basket of goodies, and then have to be put through their paces and produce something delicious. And talking about food, I mean, from what I can gather, all the local restaurants will also be planning special kiwi fruit menus for that weekend. Yes, they um, obviously like to get people used to the ideas of cooking with kiwis and what you can do with kiwis, um, fantastic cocktails, kiwis in dishes. So, yeah, all the restaurants will have kiwi specials and people should definitely pop into them um, in between and see what they have on offer. And besides that, now if we've eaten ourselves into oblivion with all this fabulous food that's going to be there, you can take walks. To, I think it's the Cherio Gardens or the Sequoia Gardens and there's an organic cheese farm. You can go birding in the Woodbush Forest. It's a canopy tour. There's lots of sort of adventure sports. It's, it seems like you've got everything there, Jane. 
Well, we like to think so. Um, it's, it's, although it's called the, the land of the silver mist because it's often very misty, this is a lovely time of year because the days are, are quite clear um, and there's not so much rain and it's not quite that chilly yet. Um, and yes, so the gardens of Cheo and Sequoia are beautiful with all the autumn colours and leaves, really well worth a visit. Um, and the Fachrock Bus Cheese Farm, which is very close to that, and actually the the mountain bike race goes through all three of those those venues. Um, and of course, then you have the beautiful indigenous forests, which um, are, are part of the Mahubuskliff hiking trail, um, and definitely worth a visit, even just for a day for a picnic or something like that. Lots of birds. Yes, and we do have some excellent bird guides who, who live in the area. So if people are interested in birding, they can also you know book a bird guide who can take them and give them a um, a tour and teach them a little bit about the about the birds. Um, and that is also an area that we would we will develop further um, from a tourism point of view in the future. And for all those adrenaline junkies, you've got lots for them to do as well. Yes, absolutely. We are blessed with um, the the Lataba Gorge. It's actually the the source of the um, Great Lataba River. is um, just near Hainertsburg in the, in the Georgia Valley, and that is the place where you will find the canopy tour, which actually goes through the gorge. Um, and then that same place is used for the abseiling and the tubing. Um, and the clerfing, so that is really a spectacularly beautiful spot, and it's really the only way to see the gorge. I was talking to somebody from Hanitzburg a few weeks ago, and, and just, I have run this little feature on my show called My Town, and I asked people to tell me what it is about where they live that would entice people to come and visit. And she was saying it's one of those things you're really dying to tell people about, but on the other hand, you want to keep it a secret almost. You don't really want to tell people what's going on there. And she said the village of Hannesburg is just a real quaint little village, almost lost in time. And there's, just tell me a little bit about the village itself, because I mean, there's a museum there as well, I think. Yes, the museum has just opened um, recently and the, the village actually just celebrated its 125th anniversary. Um, it it uh, is originally a, a mining town um, and it really is still very small and very quaint and, and we definitely do um, struggle between the, the desire to have lots of visitors from a tourism business point of view, but also not to have a change because we do we do love it just the way it is. But it, it is a small village. There are a number of um, shops selling um, antiques, a secondhand bookshop, um, clothing. We've got a lovely art shop, and um, of course all the necessary important things like like groceries. But um, it really is quite small, and, and often we say that if, you, if you're driving too fast on R71, you, you, you may miss it altogether. <laughs> and there's quite a, a close connection between Hennetsburg and Mahubuskloof. Yes, so uh, I think people are familiar with the name Mahubuskloof, mm. and that is largely, I think, thanks to the, the indigenous forests and things. And um, Hennetsburg really is the only little village in the area.
So it's all, all systems go for the 27th and the 28th for the Kiwi Fruit, Jane said, the, possibly the fifth annual Kiwi Fruit Festival. And uh, what about accommodation for people coming up there, Jane? There is plenty of accommodation available in the area, ranging from bed and breakfast to guest houses to self-catering. Um, it, it is, of course, um, a, a busy weekend, so people should try and, and book in advance. Um, and then there are also two hotels in the area. Would they find out that information on mechubiskloftourism.co.za? Would all that kind of thing be available there? Yes. Okay, yes, so all the accommodation is listed. So if people are looking to go up for the weekend, and it sounds like an ideal place to go for the weekend, loads to do, and uh, lots of accommodation, you'll be able to find that. I'll give you the, the website again in a moment. But uh, something different to do. And now you know, kiwi fruit doesn't all come in from uh, Australia or New Zealand or wherever it is we thought it came from. We grow it ourselves, and you can go and enjoy some lovely kiwi fruit up in Limpopo. Jane, thank you so much for joining me on the show this evening. Thank you very much for having me. And en- enjoy the festival. Thank you. Jane Allison is Secretary of the Tourism Mahubuskloof Association and she was talking there about the upcoming Mahubuskloof and Hainitzburg Annual Kiwi Fruit Festival. And if you'd like more information or if you'd like to find out about accommodation or what's going on where, the program will be on the website. Have a look. It's www.mahubuskloofftourism.co.za. Time to travel with Karen Key. Well, here's someone we haven't heard from for a while, but he's back in town. He's been out gallivanting all over the place. As Richard Holmes, he's the iAfrica.com travel editor. Richard, welcome back to the show eventually. Evening. Thanks, Karen. Yeah, I've been a bit busy. Just, just a tad. <laughs> well, we, we're going to have you around for a while now, so I thought I'd grab you and pop you into the studio. But the first thing we're going to talk about this evening is your skiing holiday, the new Club Med Ski Resort. Yeah, mm. it was the um, the first time I'd been skiing, actually, which oh, I think really? su- surprised a couple of people that I told. But um, yeah, it, I mean, ski, a ski trip's been on my list for years and I've just never gotten around to it and then I was invited to the opening of this new Club Med Ski Resort which is their their latest offering in the Italian Alps and um, called Progelato Via Latia and it's a stunning spot it's also again like I said it's my first experience of a ski resort but from what I've always seen there are these kind of monolithic tower blocks that are kind of plonked on a mountainside which are generally quite ugly and then off you go skiing whereas what was quite unusual with this resort is that it's the first time they've built the resort in the style of an alpine village so that was that's the first thing that strikes you when you drive into the the resort is you sort of go well where's the resort and it's it's all around you which is lovely because it doesn't feel as sort of constructed or artificial as you might expect so yeah it's sort of a spread out um you know double story um resort which which fits into the mountainside really nicely it's very relaxed how easy was the skiing? Because apparently it's not that easy to do. How did you find that? Well. <laughs> <laughs> or shouldn't I ask you that No, question? no, you should. You see, but I, I'm probably going to give a bit of a reckless answer in that I had never been skiing or snowboarding before. I can surf a little bit and I skateboarded as a kid, I guess. But um, we, So you've got some sort of a balance idea. Well, I, can, I can balance on something that's a little bit unstable. That's about as far as it goes. And the first day that we arrived, the, the lessons had finished for the day. And um, the, a friend of mine that I was traveling with, we thought, well, we don't really want to wait until tomorrow and we've got this you know gleaming new snowboard right here let's go and see what we can do so basically long story short we we found a lift that was going up the mountainside next to the resort which happened to be a red slope and anybody who skied before will know that the slopes go from uh, green which is kind of absolute beginners through blue which is novice uh, through red which is 
only do this if you know what if you know what you're doing. And then black, which is sort of if you don't know what you're doing, you're going to die. So we were sort of one below going to die. Were you a little confused as, as to your you know level of of ability at this? No, point? no, no. We knew exactly what our ability was. We knew exactly what the slope was. But we thought it was one of those things that this 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 made of mine, Paul, that was that was along. Put it very well. It's one of those things where you kind of go, hold my beer and watch this. <laughs> <laughs> And, and, and it's an experience that's either going to turn out really well or is going to end in hospital. But you do know you're a grown-up now, Richard. I do, I do. But um, you know, you win in Rome. So well, okay, alright. As it turned out, you obviously love to tell it, it the tale because here you are. Yeah. Completely, and I have two functioning legs, which is good. <laughs> but uh, no, basically, we yeah, we we took ourselves up to the top of this red slope, strapped on the snowboards, and kind of made it up as we went along. So we were probably the most ungracious, un you know, untextbook snowboarders in the whole of Italy for those few days. But um, the great great thing about it is that it gave us confidence. So that first afternoon, we threw ourselves down a slope and we survived. And then the next day, which is when, you know, the whole resort was open, the lifts were running, everything was kind of full steam ahead. We kind of thought we knew what we were doing, which we probably didn't. We probably should have gone for lessons. And the nice thing about those resorts, obviously, is that it's generally all-inclusive. And the great thing with Club Med is that it, it's it's all all-inclusive, meaning all of your, your drinks, your food, all that sort of thing is, is thrown in. But with almost all resorts, the um, your accommodation, mostly, uh, usually your, your lift passes and your uh, equipment hire and ski lessons are all part of the package that you pay up front, which I quite like that. I like sort mm. of t- taking the credit card paying three months before I travel and then when you arrive, you go, right, everything's taken there's care no of. There so might be a few yeah. little bits and pieces here and there, but there's not much to take care of. And um, so, yeah, we, we didn't go for the lessons, although some other people in our traveling party did, and they were up and skiing within a couple of hours, which I think is quite impressive. So next time I go back, I will go skiing. Uh, this time we went snowboarding because I thought it would be easier to to get a hang of, you know, for the few days that we were there. And yeah, the, the, the amazing thing about this resort is, and I think if you're a, a real skier, unlike a, a fake skier or snowboarder <laughs> like me, um, is that you'll be blown away by the pasts in this area. This is um, mm. the resort's in an area called, um, like I said, the Via Latia, which means the Milky Way, which is quite lovely. You know, trust the Italians to come up with yeah. a romantic, beautiful name for, you know, mountainside full of snow. But uh, it was also the area where the Turin Winter Olympics were held in 2006. So you can, you know, presume that the this, this, this slopes are pretty world class. And that area has got over 400 kilometers of, of, of ski runs. You can actually ski all the way from Italy through into France and back again. So uh, if you know what you're doing, it's heaven on earth, basically. <laughs> now, there, I mean, there are loads of ski resorts out there. And this one obviously is, is quite special. I mean, it's your first trip to a ski resort. It's one of the all-inclusive thing. Is this somewhere that you could take the family? Definitely, yeah. I mean, look, it's obviously most of the activities are geared around being on the slope. So, you know, for instance, I have a two-year-old. Taking a two-year-old to a ski resort is not going to, you know, the novelties, the novelty of snow is going to wear off pretty quickly. But for a family break where the family's sort of adventurous and outdoorsy, absolutely, I think it's fantastic because you've got those days on the slopes which everybody can enjoy and there's there's lessons geared for, you know, all levels of, of skier but also all ages. So there'll be lessons geared towards, you know, real you know, kids starting out that have never been in snow before. Um, but then also if they, you know, if kids can't last for sort of a week of skiing on the slopes every day, there's lots of other activities on offer. They do, um, there's a kids club for starters for really young kids who, you know, might just want to go tobogganing for an hour or so. But then there's a kids club where they do art and music and there's computer games and there's, wow, you know, okay. um, chaperones to look after them and that sort of thing. They do offer a babysitting surface in the evening. I think they have some of the kids clubs extend till later in the evening as well. 
well so that you know mum and dad can go off and have dinner by themselves and the kids can have an early dinner and then and then disappear and watch a movie or whatever and hang out with other kids so and I mean when we were there the resort was just getting started it was it had just opened and already the kids club was pretty full um, of sort of gangs of kids and I think that's the other nice thing I remember that from my childhood not in ski resorts but in sort of family resorts on the garden route where all the kids of certain ages sort of band together and form little roving gangs which is <laughs> you know could end badly if it was in London but in Italy yes. it seems to work out nicely <laughs> so what is there to do you talk about the parents going off and having dinner in the evening what is there to do in the evenings for the grown ups ah well there's quite a lot I mean in fact before the evenings let me just mention one thing about what there is to do after the skiing because oh, right, the ski. what you what mm. you normally well even before the upraise ski whatever before is in skiing to parlance but um the the spa that, that that's at the resort oh. is fantastic there's a really great spa um run by Mayotte and they are I think they're probably specialists at treating tired legs because that's what most people have <laughs> I when would they imagine. come off the slopes you see lots of people sort of hobbling their way in pain away from the away from the ski lift and I was definitely one of them on the the Saturday that I was there so there's a full-on spa, which I think is a great way to kind of ease from, you know, a day on the slopes into the evening. Uh, and they've got, um, you know, Turkish baths and obviously all range of spa treatments and saunas and a swimming pool and water jets and all that sort of thing. So there's a heck of a lot to offer in the spa for starters. So once you've done that, then yes, there's the evening is geared around the main sort of resort area. There's a couple of bars, which are quite lovely. There's some great tables outside with you know, views of the slopes and that sort of thing. And again, because it's all inclusive, you're not really thinking, you're not, you're not worrying about that other beer mm. and, you know, yeah. can I afford another 10 euros for this? That, and there's the no other. limit on what you can eat and drink there. We didn't reach any and we have, we enjoyed ourselves for those few days. <laughs> so, okay. No. Um, the only things that, that, that are there as a surcharge, I think, is if you go into the real vintage wines, you know. Oh, okay. obviously, well, that's so, fair enough. So the, you know, the, your basic beers, your basic spirits, your basic wines, those are all included. We had, we drank wine from the local region, from Piemont, and it was fantastic. So, and Unless you really want to go into, you know, Chateau Petrus or something, then they're going to... And the spa, is that included? No, the spa, well, some of the spa features are included. Um, You know, you get free access to the Turkish baths and the sauna and the swimming pool and that kind of thing. Obviously, all the spa treatments are are not included that's that's for your own account and there's also the, there's talking about the evenings there, there's four restaurants on the resort two of which are speciality restaurants which for which there is a surcharge so that's kind of if you really want something fine dining a special meal that kind of thing um, or one of the res- restaurants does sort of high-end Italian cuisine. The other one specializes in mountain cuisine, which is probably going to be a bit heartier. But we, to be honest, didn't feel the need to go and have a look at those two at all. There's the, the two main restaurants, uh, which is called Il Pimonte and the other one, La Trattoria, which are as the names, well, as La Trattoria might sort of explain, the one is fairly rustic and casual and uh, is geared around sort of fresh pizza, fresh pasta coming out of the oven, that kind of thing. And, um, and a lovely deli section where we just went for the there's an enormous Serrano ham. Um, not Serrano ham. <laughs> Palmer ham. Palmer <laughs> Which they were just slicing and slicing and slicing. So we just tucked into that and there's you know, an array of olives and tapasi sort of dishes, that kind of thing. Uh, and then the main restaurant is a huge buffet. And I'm normally hugely averse to buffets uh, yeah. you know it's food that you imagine has just been sitting there stewing for hours so I'm not a fan at all and I was actually quite impressed so there's different sections there's hot and cold and salads and again more parma ham and great selection of cheeses a lot of um, cheese from the south of Italy some buffalo mozzarella so yeah you won't be you, you won't go hungry definitely and the nice thing about the main restaurant as well and again you often find this in resorts where you know this resort's got uh, I think about 230 rooms so you're looking at a good couple of 
100 people when it when it's full and you can often feel like you're just part of a herd being you know shuffled through this this feeding trough and the layout of Vilpimonte is ex is not that which is great it's divided into different dining rooms so there's one which has a bit more of an upmarket feel there's one that's geared totally for families which is bright and colorful there's one which is you know aimed more at groups and is a bit more relaxed and they're they're nicely separated away so you never feel like you're in a dining room of 600 people you feel like you're in a room of say uh, 100 120 which is just a nice bustle so yeah i was i was pleasantly impressed with the the kind of the food and wine offerings there what about getting there how easy is it to get there uh, it's not bad. We flew there with Air France, which is, you know, direct from Cape Town and in the summertime and Johannesburg year-round. They fly direct through to Paris and then from Paris it's another, I think, hour and a half to Turin, uh, which is a pretty easy connection at Charles de Gaulle. And then from Turin, it's about an hour and a half to two hours drive, which is actually lovely. You know, it, at the end of a long journey, you start to, you feel a bit tired, but it's a beautiful drive up through the farmlands and then, you know, the, the road just winds up and up and up and up and up into the Alps. So it's, it's, it's a lovely Lovely journey, actually. So yeah, no time zone difference to speak of. So there's no jet lag, really. Oh, um, yeah. So we were, I mean, we left. You know, I left Cape Town late afternoon, and by the next lunchtime, we were in the snow, which I think isn't isn't wow. bad. It's not bad for long haul travel. Yeah. And closest little town or village to where you were? Um, cheapest. There are a couple of small villages along the way, but generally they're geared at other people coming and hiring apartments. So it's not really the kind of place you're going to go to get out and explore okay. the surrounding countryside. I think if you want to do soak up a little bit of, um, you know, real Italy, I suppose, or Italy outside of the, uh, the resort or the slopes, then I would aim to spend a day or two in Turin. Uh, that's the biggest town in the area. It's where you fly into and fly out of. So, And there will be a fair number of attractions there, I imagine, although I'm not, we, we didn't have time to explore that. But it's really, I mean, a ski holiday, I think, is, you know, you're there to ski. So... Mm. It, it, it's why you, you you need to be there for seven days. Uh, it's a it's a good length of time to kind of either learn how to do it for starters or kind of get back into the groove if you've done it before. And then yeah, just to focus on what that has what that area has to offer. And like I say, there's you know 400 kilometers of runs around the resort, so you, you're not going to get bored. You're not going to feel <laughs> like you've done the, they've done the same run no. too many times. Yeah. What about cost? It obviously will depend on the season and you know what airfares are doing, that sort of thing. When we travelled, it was in the region of I think seventeen or eighteen thousand rand per person. And now that was including flights, accommodation for I think seven nights on pretty much a full board all inclusive basis. That's not bad, Richard. So for me, that uh, not bad. And uh, I'll yeah, it, well, especially if it includes the flights, because that's normally the sort of fly in the ointment. When absolutely. It comes to these well, things. the nice thing with you know the, the, the nice thing with going with a resort company like Club Med is that uh, as opposed to booking your own air ticket, finding your own apartment, taking your own gear, that sort of thing, is that, you know, mm. Club Med is sending hundreds and hundreds of people uh, to the resort every year. So they go to Air France and go, look, we're going to spend, you know, we're going to send this many people uh, over the coming ski season. They get a better rate than you can probably get on your own. So um, it, from that point of view, I don't think seventeen or 18,000 Rand is a bad it's deal not, for... It's not, especially for seven nights, plus in, all in, everything included, except yeah. if you want to go sort of slightly outside of the, the box out. then. Yeah, yeah. And including the flights. I mean, that's incredible. Absolutely. And so, you can yeah. book all of that. I mean, it's just a once-off booking with Club Med and that's it. They take care of everything. Absolutely, yeah. So, I mean, look, obviously those rates, are, like I say, are going to change. Oh, if, you want, if you want to go in yes. December and New Year, you're going to pay more and that kind of thing. Mm. So you want to avoid those school holidays, especially the especially the European holidays. But yeah, generally, it's as people may have found with uh, a trip to Mauritius in a resort, you know, those holidays are, they have the numbers to make them quite affordable. So 
it might not be an you know as authentic as staying with a little in a family pension down the road and that sort of thing. But it's absolutely stress free because everything is taken care I like of. This, you don't have I like to. That part. You don't have to worry mm. about going to find a, a meal in the evening. You don't have to worry that your gear is not going to be up to scratch and you know you're going to be along a drive or a taxi from the lift and that sort of thing. The the lovely thing about this resort, which you don't get it at all resorts I, I discovered is that you can ski in and ski out so there's a lift literally at the front door to the main oh, building so that's nice. you go from your room you go to the little ski changing area where you keep your gear every day every night and you you strap on your bindings and get into your, your cold weather gear you take about a 20 meter walk to the ski lift and a four minute lift and you're on the slopes and that's it there's no wow, bus okay. transfers or mm. anything like that you know and unless weather shuts down lifts and you need to find another place but Generally, we didn't have that problem. We spent a whole day just going up and down and, you know, exploring the mountainside on the slopes and came back knackered. It was fantastic. <laughs> it actually sounds like the ideal holiday. It is a great... the part it, about not having to do anything ourselves. Everything is just done for you. I completely. Mean, how completely. wonderful is that? And, like I say, that's what these resort operators specialize mm. in. It's absolutely stress-free travel. Yeah. So, are you planning to go back again to try out your luck on, on actual skis I'd love time? to. I'd love to. I just need to convince my wife. <laughs> I think maybe if I can tell her about the spa and the bar with the white wine and the views of the mountains and the if kids' club... Then, then I might get there. Yeah, yeah. But I'm definitely keen to go back. Sounds and promising, Richard. Definitely. Sounds like you might have a chance. <laughs> I hope so. It sounds wonderful. But now you, you've been away for a while, so you're going to have to come back over the next few weeks and tell us where else you've been. Absolutely. Great. Been to places very different with no snow, and no. <laughs> uh, but, well, we'll talk about that another time. Okay. Well, we look forward to having you back. Thank you very much for joining us this Only evening. A pleasure. Thank you. I was speaking there with Richard Holmes. He's the iAfrica.com travel editor. And if you'd like to find out more about the Club Med Resort, the new, new ski resort just outside of Turin, have a look at the website it's www.clubmed.co.za time to travel with car and key well, that's it for Time to Travel for this week. But before we go, I just want to remind you about that amazing garden fair at Kirstenbosch coming up this weekend. If you, un Unfortunately, my garden has to grow in self-defense because I'm not terribly good. I don't have too much of a green thumb, I'm afraid. But um, you can go and get yourself a piece of history because they're going to be selling off pieces of some of those centena centenarians the plants that have been growing there for 100 years and um, that's this coming weekend the 20th and the 21st of April and it's definitely well worth going off to go and have a look if you're in Cape Town unfortunately if you're not here maybe make a plan to suddenly shoot down here for a few days over the weekend I promise you the weather apparently is going to be a lot better than it has been for the last two days but if you want to find out what's going on there because it's a lot happening at Kirstenbosch at the moment it's 100 years old and they've got loads of events coming up and you can have a look at that website it's www.sa a-N-B-I, that's sanbi.org forward slash gardens forward slash Kirsten Bosch. And there's a number you can call there as well. It's 021-799-8783. And then I was also talking to Jane Allison about the Mahubus Klofenhainitzburg Annual Kiwi Fruit Festival. And that's coming up soon as well at the end of the month. And also something quite unusual, um, as I said before when I was talking to her, we don't really realize that we grow kiwi fruit ourselves here in Cape, in, well, some in the Western Cape, but up in Limpopo. Also sounds like an amazing thing to go and have a look at. And uh, if you want to find out more about that, the website there is www.mahubuskluftourism.co.za. And then coming up in the show next week, just so that you've got some idea of what's happening, um, Kerry Harvey, she's been on the show a few times, but she's been doing the most amazing 
journey by sea all through the islands, Greece and all over the place. So she's going to be coming to tell us about that next week. And um, I spent the afternoon today up at Constantia. Also, lots of changes going on there. Wonderful, wonderful venue and wonderful destination if you're ever in Cape Town. Do pop along and see them. Wonderful um, history that goes on there. But lots more coming up. But um, I'll be back with you next Monday evening, just after nine, with a law report when we'll be talking family law, everything from divorce to maintenance to child custody. That's the law report on Monday, the 22nd of April. And if you need any information, you can look at the Facebook page. It's Travel on SAFM. There's also a link there to if you would like to download a podcast. But if you'd like to email me, that's travel at safm.co.za.